Section 13 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Italy Revisited, Part 3. 5. Below, in the city, through all frequentations of streets and churches and museums, it was impossible not to have a good deal of the same feeling. But here the impression was more easy to analyse. It came from a sense of the perfect separateness of all the great productions of the Renaissance from the present and the future of the place, from the actual life and manners, the native ideal. I have already spoken of the way in which the vast aggregation of beautiful works of art in the Italian cities strikes the visitor nowadays, so far as present Italy is concerned, as the mere stock-in-trade of an impecunious but thrifty people. It is this spiritual solitude, this conscious disconnection of the great works of architecture and sculpture that deposits a certain weight upon the heart. When we see a great tradition broken, we feel something of the pain with which we hear a stifled cry. But regret is one thing, and resentment is another. Seeing one morning in a shop window the series of Mornings in Florence, published a few years since by Mr. Ruskin, I made haste to enter and purchase these amusing little books, some passages of which I remembered formerly to have read. I couldn't turn over many pages without observing that the separateness of the new and old which I just mentioned had produced in their author the liveliest irritation. With the more acute phases of this condition it was difficult to sympathise, for the simple reason it seems to me that it savours of arrogance to demand of any people as a right of one's own that they shall be artistic. Be artistic yourselves, is the very natural reply that young Italy has at hand for English critics and censors. When a people produces beautiful statues and pictures, it gives us something more than is set down in the bond, and we must thank it for its generosity. And when it stops producing them or caring for them, we may cease thanking. But we can hardly have a right to begin and rail. The wreck of Florence, says Mr. Ruskin, quote, is now too ghastly and heartbreaking to any human soul that remembers the days of old, end quote. And these desperate words are an allusion to the fact that the little square in front of the cathedral, at the foot of Giotto's tower, with the grand baptistry on the other side, is now the resort of a number of hackney coaches and omnibuses. This fact is doubtless lamentable, and it would be a hundred times more agreeable to see among people who have been made the heirs of so priceless a work of art as the sublime Campanile, some such feeling about it as would keep it free even from the danger of defilement. A cab stand is a very ugly and dirty thing, and Giotto's tower should have nothing in common with such conveniences. But there is more than one way of taking such things, and the sensitive stranger who has been walking about for a week 
with his mind full of the sweetness and suggestiveness of a hundred Florentine places, may feel at last, in looking into Mr. Ruskin's little tracts, that discord for discord, there isn't much to choose between the importunity of the author's personal ill-humour and the incongruity of horse-pails and bundles of hay. And one may say this without being at all a partisan of the doctrine of the inevitableness of new desecrations. For my own part, I believe there are few things in this line that the new Italian spirit isn't capable of, and not many indeed that we aren't destined to see. Pictures and buildings won't be completely destroyed, because in that case the forestieri, scatterers of cash, would cease to arrive and the turnstiles at the doors of the old palaces and convents, with the little patented slit for absorbing your half-franc, would grow quite rusty, would stiffen with disuse. But it's safe to say that the new Italy growing into an old Italy again will continue to take her elbow room wherever she may find it. I'm almost ashamed to say what I did with Mr. Ruskin's little books. I put them into my pocket and betook myself to Santa Maria Novella. There I sat down and after I'd looked about for a while at the beautiful church, drew them forth one by one and read the greater part of them. Occupying oneself with light literature in a great religious edifice is perhaps as bad a piece of profanation as any of those rude dealings which Mr. Ruskin justly deplores, but a traveller has to make the most of odd moments. And I was waiting for a friend. In his company I was going to look at Giotto's beautiful frescoes in the cloister of the church. My friend was a long time coming, so that I had an hour with Mr. Ruskin, whom I called just now a light literateur, because in these little mornings in Florence, he is forever making his readers laugh. I remembered, of course, where I was, and in spite of my latent hilarity, felt I had really got such a snubbing. I had really been enjoying the good old city of Florence, but I now learned from Mr. Ruskin that this was a scandalous waste of charity. I should have gone about with an imprecation on my lips. I should have worn a face three yards long. I had taken great pleasure in certain frescoes by Ghirlandaio in the choir at that very church, but it appeared from one of these little books that these frescoes were as naught. I had much admired Santa Croce and had thought the Duomo a very noble affair, but I had now the most positive assurance that I knew nothing about them. After a while, if it was only ill-humour that was needed for doing honour to the city of the Medici, I felt I had risen to a proper level. Only now it was Mr. Ruskin himself I had lost patience with, not with the stupid Brunelleschi, not the vulgar Ghirlandaio. Indeed, I lost patience altogether, and asked myself by what right this informal votary of form pretended to run right through a poor, charmed Flano's quiet contemplations, 
his attachment to the noblest of pleasures, his enjoyment of the loveliest of cities. The little book seemed invidious and insane, and it was only when I remembered that I had been under no obligation to buy them that I checked myself in repenting of having done so. Then, at last, my friend arrived, and we passed together out of the church and through the first cloister beside it into a smaller enclosure where we stood a while to look at the tomb of la marchesa strozzi ridolfi upon which the great giotto has painted four superb little pictures it was easy to see the pictures were superb but i drew forth one of my little books again for i had observed that mr ruskin spoke of them hereupon i recovered my tolerance for what could be better in this case, I asked myself, than Mr. Ruskin's remarks? They are, in fact, excellent and charming, full of appreciation of the deep and simple beauty of the great painter's work. I read them aloud to my companion. But my companion was rather, as the phrase is, put off by them. One of the frescoes is a picture of the birth of the Virgin. It contains a figure coming through a door. Of ornament, I quote, there is only the entirely simple outline of the vase which the servant carries. Of colour, two or three masses of sober red and pure white with brown and grey. That is all. Mr. Ruskin continues, And if you are pleased with this, you can see Florence. But if not, by all means amuse yourself there if you find it amusing. As long as you like, you can never see it. End quote. You can never see it. This seemed to my friend insufferable, and I had to shuffle away the book again, so that we might look at the fresco with the unruffled geniality it deserves. We agreed afterwards, when in a more convenient place I read aloud a good many more passages from the precious tracts, that there are a great many ways of seeing Florence, as there are of seeing most beautiful and interesting things, and that it is very dry and pedantic to say that the happy vision depends upon our squaring our toes with a certain particular chalk mark. We see Florence wherever and whenever we enjoy it, and for enjoying it, we find a great many more pretexts than Mr. Ruskin seems inclined to allow. My friend and I convinced ourselves also, however, that the little books were an excellent purchase, on account of the great charm and felicity of much of their incidental criticism, to say nothing, as I hinted just now, of their being extremely amusing. Nothing, in fact, is more comical than the familiar asperity of the author's style and the pedagogic fashion in which he pushes and pulls his unhappy pupils about, jerking their heads toward this, wrapping their knuckles for that, sending them to stand in corners and giving them scripture texts to copy. But it is neither the felicities nor the aberrations of detail in Mr. Ruskin's writings that are the main affair for most readers, it is the general tone that, as I have said, puts them off or draws them on. For many persons, he will never bear the test of being read in this rich old Italy, 
where art, so long as it really lived at all, was spontaneous, joyous, irresponsible. If the reader is in daily contact with those beautiful Florentine works, which do still, in a way, force themselves into notice through the vulgarity and cruelty of modern profanation, it will seem to him that this commentator's comment is pitched in the strangest falsetto key. One may read a hundred pages of this sort of thing, said my friend, without ever dreaming that he is talking about art. You can say nothing worse about him than that, which is perfectly true. Art is the one corner of human life in which we may take our ease. To justify our presence there, the only thing demanded of us is that we should have felt the representational impulse. In other connections, our impulses are conditioned and embarrassed. We're allowed to have only so many as are consistent with those of our neighbours, with their convenience and well-being, with their convictions and prejudices, their rules and regulations. Art means an escape from all this. Wherever her shining standard floats, the need for apology and compromise is over. There it is enough simply that we please or are pleased, where the tree is judged only by its fruits. If these are sweet, the tree is justified, and not less so the consumer. One may read a great many pages of Mr. Ruskin without getting a hint of this delightful truth, a hint of the not unimportant fact that art, after all, is made for us, not we for art. This idea that the value of a work is in the amount of illusion it yields is conspicuous by its absence. And as for Mr. Ruskin's world being a place, his world of art, where we may take life easily, woe to the luckless mortal who enters it with any such disposition. Instead of a garden of delight, he finds a sort of assize court in perpetual session. Instead of a place in which human responsibilities are lightened and suspended, he finds a region governed by a kind of draconic legislation. His responsibilities are indeed tenfold increased. The gulf between truth and error is forever yawning at his feet. The pains and penalties of this same error are advertised in apocalyptic terminology upon a thousand signposts. And the rash intruder soon begins to look back with infinite longing to the lost paradise of the artless. There can be no greater want of tact in dealing with those things with which men attempt to ornament life than to be perpetually talking about error. A truce to all rigidities is the law of the place. The only thing absolute there is that some force and some charm have worked. The grim old bearer of the scales excuses herself. She feels this not to be her province. Differences here are not iniquity and righteousness. They are simply variations of temperament, kinds of curiosity. We are not under theological government. 6. 
It was very charming in the bright warm days to wander from one corner of Florence to another, paying one's respects again to remembered masterpieces. It was pleasant also to find that memory had played no tricks, and that the rarest things of an earlier year were as rare as ever. To enumerate these felicities would take a great deal of space, for I never had been more struck with the mere quantity of brilliant Florentine work. Even giving up the Duomo and Santa Croce to Mr. Ruskin as, quote, very ill-arranged edifices, end quote, the list of Florentine treasures is almost inexhaustible. Those long outer galleries of the Uffizi had never beguiled me more. Sometimes there were not more than two or three figures standing there, Baidecker in hand, to break the charming perspective. One side of this upstairs portico, it will be remembered, is entirely composed of glass. The continuity of old-fashioned windows, draped with white curtains of rather primitive fashion, which hang there till they acquire a perceptible tone. The light passing through them is softly filtered and diffused. It rests mildly upon the old marbles, chiefly antique Roman busts, which stand in the narrow intervals of the casements. It is projected upon the numerous pictures that cover the opposite wall, and that are not by any means, as a general thing, the gems of the great collection, it imparts a faded brightness to the old ornamental arabesques upon the painted wooden ceiling, and it makes a great soft shining upon the marble floor, in which, as you look up and down, you see the strolling tourists and the motionless copyists almost reflected. I don't know why I should find all this very pleasant, but in fact I have seldom gone into the Uffizi without walking the length of this third-story cloister between the, for the most part, third-rate canvases and panels and the faded cotton curtains. Why is it that in Italy we see a charm in things in regard to which, in other countries, we always take vulgarity for granted? If in the city of New York a great museum of the arts were to be provided by way of decoration with a species of veranda, enclosed on one side by a series of small paned windows draped in dirty linen and furnished on the other with an array of pictorial feebleness, the place being surmounted by a thinly painted wooden roof, strongly suggestive of summer heat, of winter cold, of frequent leakage, those amateurs who had had the advantage of foreign travel will be at small pains to conceal their contempt Contemptible or respectable to the judicial mind, this quaint old lodger of the Uffizi admitted me into twenty chambers, where I found as great a number of ancient favourites. I don't know that I had a warmer greeting for any old friend than for Andrea del Sarto, that most touching of painters who was not one of the first but it was on the other side of the Arno that I found him in force, in those dusky drawing-rooms of the Pitti Palace, to which you take your way along the tortuous tunnel that wanders through the houses of Florence, and is supported by the little goldsmith's booths on the Ponte Vecchio. In the rich, insufficient light of these beautiful rooms, where, to look at the pictures, 
you sit in damask chairs and rest your elbows on tables of malachite, the elegant Andrea becomes deeply effective. Before long, he has drawn you close. But the great pleasure, after all, was to revisit the earlier masters in those specimens of them chiefly that bloom so unfailingly on the big plain walls of the academy. Fra Angelico and Filippo Lippi, Botticelli and Lorenzo di Credi are the clearest, the sweetest and best of all painters. As I sat for an hour in their company, in the cold great hall of the institution I have mentioned, there are shabby rafters above and an immense expanse of brick tiles below and many bad pictures as well as good. It seemed to me more than ever that if one really had to choose, one couldn't do better than choose here. You may rest at your ease at the academy in this big first room, at the upper and especially on the left, because more than many other places it savours of old Florence. More, for instance, in reality than the Bargello, though the Bargello makes great pretensions. Beautiful and masterful though the Bargello is, it smells too strongly of restoration, and much of old Italy as still lurks in its furbished and renovated chambers. It speaks even more distinctly of the ill-mannered young kingdom that has, as unavoidably as you please, lifted down a hundred delicate works of sculpture from the convent walls where their pious authors place them. If the early Tuscan painters are exquisite, I can think of no praise pure enough for the sculptors of the same period. Donatello and Luca della Robbia, Matteo Civitale and Mina da Fiesole, who, as I refreshed my memory of them, seemed to me to leave absolutely nothing to be desired in the way of straightness of inspiration and grace of invention. The Baghero is full of early Etruscan sculpture, most of the pieces of which have come from suppressed religious houses, and even if the visitor be an ardent liberal, he is uncomfortably conscious of the rather brutal process by which it has been collected. We can hardly envy young Italy the number of odious things she has had to do. The railway journey from Florence to Rome has been altered both for the better and for the worse. For the better in that it has been shortened by a couple of hours. For the worse inasmuch as when about half the distance has been traversed, the train deflects to the west and leaves the beautiful old cities of Assisi, Perugia, Terni, Narni unvisited. Of old, it was possible to call at these places, in a manner, from the window of the train. Even if you didn't stop us, you probably couldn't, every time you passed, the immensely interesting way in which, like a loosened belt on an aged and shrunken person, their ample walls held them easily together was something well worth noting. Now, however, for compensation, the express train to Rome stops at Ovieto. And in consequence, in consequence of what? What is the result of a stop of an express train at Ovieto? As I glibly wrote that sentence, I suddenly paused 
aware of the queer stuff I was uttering. That an express train should graze the base of the horrid purple mountain, from the apex of which this dark old Catholic city uplifts the glittering front of its cathedral, that might have been foretold by a keen observer of contemporary manners, but that it would really have the grossness to hang about is a fact over which, as he records it, an inveterate perverse cherisher of the sense of the past order, the order still largely prevailing at the time of his first visit to Italy, may well make what is vulgarly called an ado. The train does stop at Orvieto, not very long, it is true, but long enough to let you out. This same phenomenon takes place on the following day, when, having visited the city, you get in again. I availed myself without scruple of both of these occasions, having formerly neglected to drive to the place in a post-chaise. But frankly, the railway station being in the plain, and the town on the summit of the extraordinary hill, you have time to forget the puffing indiscretion while you wind upwards to the city gate. The position of Ovieto is superb, worthy of the middle distance of an 18th century landscape. But, as everyone knows, the splendid cathedral is the proper attraction of the spot, which indeed say for this fine monument, and for its craggy and crumbling ramparts, is a meanly arranged, and as Italian cities go, not particularly impressive little town. I spent a beautiful Sunday there and took in the charming church. I gave it my best attention, though on the whole, I fear I found it inferior to its fame. A high concert of colour, however, is the densely carved front, richly covered with radiant mosaics. The old white marble of the sculptured portions is as softly yellow as ancient ivory. The large, exceedingly bright pictures above them flashed and twinkled in the glorious weather. Very striking and interesting the theological frescoes of Luca Signorelli, though I have seen compositions of this general order that appealed to me more. Characteristically fresh, finally, the clear-faced saints and seraphs in robes of pink and azure, whom Fra Angelico had painted upon the ceiling of the great chapel, along with a noble sitting figure, more expressive of movement than most of the creations of this pictorial peacemaker, of Christ in judgment. Yet the interest of the Cathedral of Ovieto is mainly not the visible result, but the historical process that lies behind it. Those three hundred years are the applied devotion of a people of which an American scholar has written an admirable account. Footnote. Charles Eliot Norton, Notes of Travel and Study in Italy. 1877. End of section 13.